factors associated with failure of non-operative management of appendicitis in kids. Reporting long COVID symptoms. Can we stave off kidney failure in sedentary older adults? And does home blood pressure monitor have a role in pregnancy? That's what we're talking about this week on Double T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist. And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, where I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. And Rick, let's turn right to the BMJ. This, I think, a laudatory attempt to chronicle how can we assess long COVID. This ends up being a substantial problem. Since COVID began, we've had more than 450 million infections and more than 6 million deaths. But for those individuals that aren't even hospitalized, we still have a significant number of them that have what are called long COVID symptoms. What these investigators attempted to do was to describe the development and to validate a novel patient-reported outcome measure for symptom burden from long COVID. And it's what the patients report, which is really most important. So this this study was conducted in the United Kingdom. They took individuals that reported long COVID symptoms, and they had 10 clinicians evaluate the content validity of their self-reported symptoms. And then they tested these symptoms in 274 adults with long COVID. In essence, what they were able to do is develop a pretty rigorous evaluation system with patients that had long COVID symptoms and then validated in a larger cohort. What they came with was 123 different symptom items and what are called eight interference items. These items revolve around breathing, pain, circulation, fatigue, memory, thinking, movement, ear, nose, and throat symptoms, stomach and digestion, muscle and joints, mental health, well-being, vision, a very robust way of assessing it. Now, what this will allow us to do is to more rigorously assess how often these occur, but more importantly, to try to assess whether interventions can help diminish these symptoms. How about promulgation of this checklist? And then also, since it's patient assessments of their own condition, even getting them to do it. I think in terms of promulgating it, it'll be useful in individuals when we're trying to assess whether a symptom or symptom complex can be either prevented or treated. I don't see it being applied to individuals just routinely across the United States, but I do see its usefulness in assessing how often these symptoms occur, whether an intervention early on in disease process can prevent it, or more importantly, after it's developed, what can we do to minimize the symptoms? I'm just betting that we are absolutely going to see a lot about this with regard to its research utility. Let's go to JAMA Network Open, and this is a look at something that we reported, I don't even know how many years ago, the non-operative management of appendicitis. In this case, it's in children. And this particular study investigates factors associated with the failure of non-operative management of appendicitis in children, and then it compares patient-reported outcomes between patients whose treatment succeeded and those whose treatment failed. So this was a subgroup analysis conducted in 10 children's hospitals, 370 children aged 7 to 17 years with uncomplicated appendicitis. This was one-year follow-up comparing non-operative management with antibiotics versus surgery. Here's what they found. Almost 34% of these kids ended up in treatment failure, which I thought was kind of a really pretty high number, especially when we compare it to adults. They also found that there were some symptoms that they could say suggested that there might be failure to have non-operative treatment be the right course. One of those factors was pain. The higher 
pain, interestingly, that the child presented with seemed to be associated with a higher risk of initial failure, but that a longer duration of pain was associated with a lower risk. And then finally, they looked at satisfaction with treatment decisions at one year, and it was higher among the patients with successful non-operative management. There are complications associated with the operation. So if you can avoid the operation by giving antibiotics, many kids and parents prefer to do that. The nice thing is they get to be a part of that decision-making process. And what this study shows is that the vast majority of those kids do well. And about 65% of them just do well with antibiotics. Of those that need an operation, half of them have it in the hospital. The other half have it over the next year. But all the parents overall had a very high satisfaction rate. Yeah, and so the editorialist cites that fact. I thought the other thing that the editorialist brought up that was interesting is that patients who underwent ultrasonography alone with regard to the evaluation of their appendicitis were more than twice as likely to have in-hospital treatment failure as those who underwent CT. So to me, that suggests we know that CT is widely available. Maybe we ought to be just routinely doing CT. When it's available, the answer would be that's probably the preferred imaging technique for kids with appendicitis. The other thing interesting to me is when they looked at things associated with treatment failure that you and I would have predicted, they didn't account for any of it. For example, age, white blood cell count, sex, race, ethnicity, insurance status, symptoms of presentation, imaging results, those did not predict who was likely to fail. As you said, it was just symptom duration or symptom severity. For parents and kids that have uncomplicated appendicitis, non-operative therapy can be a viable alternative in many of those patients. Yeah. On to your next one, sir. What about monitoring, self-monitoring largely, blood pressure during pregnancy, high-risk and non-high-risk patients? All right, Elizabeth. So we're going to talk about two different studies here. It goes back to the fact that if you just look at chronic hypertension, we've talked before about the fact that self-monitoring provides oftentimes more accurate assessments of blood pressure. It helps to direct treatment. It can have beneficial effects in terms of better control of blood pressure. Does that same thing apply to women that are pregnant? And let's take two groups, those that are at high risk of hypertension. Secondly, let's look at those that have chronic hypertension or high risk of preeclampsia and say whether monitoring of blood pressure at home can be helpful. Now, with the first group, what you'd like to be able to do to be able to identify high blood pressure earlier so you can initiate therapy and help prevent some of the side effects or complications in the mother and in the child. That's what one study did. In essence, when they looked at over 2,400 women and asked, can we diagnose it earlier? The answer is they didn't. The diagnosis with self-monitoring was made at the same time as those that were just followed with routine care. Now, part of that is because mothers are routinely followed fairly regularly. In fact, this was conducted in the United Kingdom where they're seen about seven times during their pregnancy. So the self-monitoring of blood pressure didn't reveal hypertension any sooner. The next study was, okay, in women that have chronic hypertension, does self-monitoring provide better control of blood pressure? There were 454 participants, again, in 15 hospital maternity units in England, the use of self-monitoring did not result in any better control than just routine care. Now, on one hand, you might call this disappointing. On the other hand, what I might say is, well, you know, we're trying to, again, control blood pressure and routinely following these mothers during pregnancy does a pretty good job of it. And using self-monitoring blood pressure doesn't add anything. So we don't need to add that to something else that the mothers to be need to be concerned about. 
Yeah, uh, trying to get her arms around preeclampsia and trying to head that off at the pass, it would seem that self-monitoring would be helpful. And let me just mention that these studies are in JAMA. It's not that monitoring blood pressure isn't helpful. It's just that if it's done routinely as a part of the routine care during pregnancy, they can do a pretty good job. So it's reassuring, and I think that sounds good. And for right now, I guess I'll stick with that. And I would also say that there is something pretty persuasive for me anyway about empowering women to monitor their own blood pressure and just make sure that it's not creeping upward. Finally, let's turn to JAMA Internal Medicine. And this is a look at whether structured moderate exercise can stave off kidney function decline in older adults who are sedentary. And this is really a big issue. I see lots and lots and lots of kidney failure among older folks when they're hospitalized. And it can be, of course, deadly. So in this case, what they did was look at just shy of 1,200 community-dwelling sedentary adults aged between 70 and 89 years with mobility limitations and available blood specimens. This was a structured two-year, partially supervised, moderate-intensity physical activity intervention that included both strength and flexibility things that they needed to do compared with just a health education control intervention, and they followed them up over two years. And they looked at glomerular filtration rate using cystatin. Basically what they found out was compared with this health education group, physical activity and exercise slowed the rate of this kidney function decline. And I think that's just really such a great outcome. This is a really difficult group. These are older individuals. They're sedentary because they had mobility limitations. So they picked the hardest group. And what they attempted to do was to get them to walk 150 minutes per week, do 10 minutes of upper extremity strength training, 10 minutes of lower extremity strength training, and then some flexibility. I would have predicted, gosh, this is a really hard group to do that in. They were somewhat successful. Very few reached all of those goals, but they got better at it. And more importantly, it decreased the decline in kidney function. And there were fewer individuals that had rapid decline in their kidney function. We've had trouble identifying things that can slow a decline in kidney function in these older individuals. We use a number of pharmacotherapies that haven't been beneficial. And this is something that doesn't require a medication. These individuals feel better because of the exercise regimen. And more importantly, it slows the decline in their kidney function. This is a pretty remarkable study. I think so. I think the fact what you mentioned about pharmacologic treatments largely targeting hypertension and diabetes in these folks certainly result in polypharmacy. And so that can even result in further compromise. Right. And, and these individuals, again, these are individuals aged 70 to 90, almost 1,200 of them, and they're usually on multiple medications as well. So using something as simple as exercise to slow kidney function decline, very important. Yeah. I wonder what it takes to overcome barriers to get folks who are sedentary previous to an intervention like this to start getting involved with daily exercise or almost daily exercise. These individuals attended exercise sessions at a field center twice a week. And then they did the home-based activities three to four times weekly. So it was a combination of group encouragement and then also following that up at home as well. Got to do more of that. That's a look at this week's medical headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all listen up and make healthy choices.